0: Good morning. Good morning. good morning. good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. It's, well, you. it's getting a little a little dreary out there, but uh, it's always so good to be in the house of the Lord and worship with other believers. Uh, we have a number of announcements uh, this morning. Uh, we, we will be having coffee time after church. And uh, and then you can see right below that in your bulletin, we will be uh, uh, planning a Thanksgiving potluck, uh, and uh, so that uh, we'll we'll have uh, uh, we'll have information on that to follow, but uh, that'll be on November 7th. And uh, next Sunday after church, uh, there'll be. Um, uh, the uh, people in the church, I was going to say the men, but that's not so. All of the people in the church that would like to are um, uh, invited to do a uh, cut and, uh, and move some wood for Jane uh, down from uh, down to her house. And I think there's uh, two or three core there. And so if you could help uh, next Sunday after church, uh, you can talk to Fred, and he's got all the details on that. Uh, but that is um, going to be for uh, the wood is for Jane and if we could all uh, if if you're able to uh, help out with that uh, or can bring a saw or bring a truck or whatever uh, many hands make light work so uh, touch base with Fred on that and uh, trunk a treat uh, coming up and uh, I know that is being worked on right now and And I'm not sure if there's an announcement on that this morning. She has something to say about about that.
1: that. Fun size candy. If you aren't coming at all and you want to donate some candy, that would be awesome. We're thinking probably around 200 kids will come through. There was 150 last year. Yeah,
0: it's awesome. Fantastic. Baking sun. <laughs> Baking sun this time. So your prayers. Let me know if you have any questions. I'm going to go get Thank you, Miranda. Uh, it's always, uh, I think this is the third year, maybe four. I can't remember. But uh, every year we've seen seen it grow. And, and as I mentioned last week, we always have a, uh, put a tract in the... Uh, in their, in their candy. So uh, they'll be getting uh, more than enough candy, but they'll also be getting the word. And so uh, just be in prayer for that, that that would be uh, a, a good outreach for us and that, uh, and that people would hear and uh, read the gospel. Uh, youth group on uh, Tuesday night, uh, all ages, and I understand that uh, this past week there was a, a, fun, a fun time and uh, so just uh, be in prayer for that, that, uh, that we would be able to bring in more of our young people in the area uh, to hear the gospel. Any other announcements this morning that I might have missed? Uh, food pantry on Saturday, yes. Donna? Ladies, Bible study starts on the 20th at 5 o'clock Wednesday the 20th at my house. Excellent, excellent. All right, well, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> our dear Lord and Heavenly Father we thank you for the opportunity that we have <laughs> to be in your house today and we think of so many places in the world that, uh, uh, that people are being martyred for their faith and, uh, and they're being watched and thrown in jail and, and uh, so many horrific things and, and we don't even think about that and we thank you for our country, and we pray that you would uh, watch over the leadership of our country. And we pray that you would watch over the leadership of our churches as well, and that, uh, and that, when the government is saying we need to do something that is against against your word, that we would stand up to that, whatever that may be, and. It doesn't sound plausible, but it's happened in other places. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us in our faith, that we would be strong, that we would be faithful to you. We thank you for this service. We uh, thank you for each one that is able to be here, and we think of those that are not able to be here this morning for whatever reason. And uh, we pray that you would bring them back to us and that uh, we would continue to see new faces. and uh, we pray that you would watch over our service, we pray that you would watch over Ian, and uh, your Holy Spirit would speak through him this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. amen. <coughs> our scripture reading this morning will be found in Psalm 90, if you'd like to follow along with me, Psalm 90, we'll be reading all 17 verses. Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath, we finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. If you would turn with me and stand and sing number 182, For the Beauty of the Earth, 182. Let's stand and sing. Thank you. And one announcement I did not uh, think to make was that uh, uh, October is uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, and uh, I, I was going to make that announcement earlier, but uh, so um, this is Pastor Appreciation Month, and so uh, we always try to do something for our pastor, wherever he is. Oh, there he is. There he is. Um, and so, uh, a, a special meal, uh, inviting them over, um, just a, a card, something, just to uh, we appreciate them and all of their hard work. And uh, so, we just want to uh, take this month um, to say thank you for, for Ian and Miranda for your hard work. So, just keep, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. And now would the ushers come forward for the morning offering, please. God from whom all blessings flow? you would remain standing and turn in your green uh, book in front of you uh, to number four. All glory be to Christ. Amen. Number four.
2: Should not. at
3: Church, we're going to take a moment now to to go before the Lord in prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll begin by praying with the Psalmist in Psalm ninety-two. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to get, sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. For you, O Lord, have made us glad by your work. At the works of your hands we sing for joy Mm -hmm. how great are your works O lord your thoughts are very deep your throne is established from of old you are from everlasting Mm -hmm. and lord we do praise you as we look at at your works especially as the 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 leaves are almost in full bloom and uh, the the beauty of the earth and of your creation astounds us and points us lord to you and your your creativeness Lord, and, and your own beauty which you've displayed in, in the works that you've made. We confess, Lord, that uh, uh, in the light of, of your presence and of your beauty that we um, we fall short of your glory. That Even this week we've sinned and done wrong uh, either in our minds, in our hearts, in our actions. Consciously or unconsciously we've we've turned aside from you Lord and from your perfect law we haven't listened to your word perfectly so we confess our sins now to you Lord we bring it into your presence and we ask that you'd forgive us let's take a moment now to, to silently confess our sins to God praise you, Lord, that because of Jesus, because of the cross, for those who come in faith to you, you do not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love towards those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far do you remove our transgressions from us in Christ. We thank you, Father, for the assurance of forgiveness we can have in Jesus' name, not because of anything we've done, but because of the finished work of the cross. We thank you, Jesus, for the good news of the gospel and the life you give us, the kind of freedom we can find in you. We pray that you'd continue to teach us how to walk in that freedom and in that life, that we'd continue to learn to walk according to your ways. Lord, we have much to be thankful for this morning. So many blessings in this, as we um, enter, Lord, the beginning of a season of thanksgiving, this harvest season. Lord, our, our thanksgiving doesn't end there. We just look around this room at, uh, at this church family and, and we're so thankful. And we're so thankful for the work that you're doing among us. Um, we're thankful for the, just the gift of this family and what a joy it is to be a part of a of a church that loves you and that loves one another we ask that you continue to bless and to grow us that we'd grow to maturity in your word that you'd be making us day by day more and more like Jesus and 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 more than that Lord that you'd extend the mission of this church beyond these four walls that that uh, you'd as we go throughout our weeks you would give us uh, you'd give us opportunities that uh that we can't help but recognize as opportunities given by you to share the gospel with those around us, with our family, with our friends. We pray especially, Lord, for those who are close to us um, and yet who are not close to you um, and and have not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you'd give them the gift of faith and that you'd give us the gift of opportunities and words to speak uh, in the right season, in the right moment. Um, and that you would work through those encounters and that many in our communities, many in our, in our own families, Lord, would be coming to Christ. We pray you'd, um, you'd, you'd grow this church in that way, Lord, that we would have the joy of seeing people come into your kingdom and rejoice to know you, our Savior. We thank you, Father, for all the work that you've done and that you are doing. We pray your blessing over the rest of this service that, that you would be at work in our hearts by your Spirit we look forward to what you'll do when we pray all this in Jesus' name, Amen.
0: Our final uh, song before the uh, message is uh, in your in your green book, and it's uh, number forty six in your green book, which is uh, towards the back, right? Yes, there it is, towards the back, the next to last page. And uh, if you'd like to stand and sing, it is to the tune of Sweet Hour of Prayer. I'll sing all three verses.
3: the text to which I'd like to draw your attention this morning will be found in mark chapter 15 mark chapter 15 and we'll be looking at the first 15 verses mark 15 verses 1 through 15 I love a good murder mystery uh, a few months ago, Miranda and I watched a film adaptation of the Orient Express, which, is, of course, is one of the great classic murder mysteries. If you're not familiar with the story, it's the story of a, of a train headed from the Orient, I think Istanbul, to somewhere in Europe. And they're caught somewhere in the mountains of Europe in this massive snowstorm, and this, this avalanche, and they're trapped in the train. Uh, for a number of hours or days. I can't remember the specific length of time. But they're there in the train, and while trapped in the mountains, there's a murder on the train. Someone's killed. And there just so happens to be a famous detective on the train as well. And he spends the rest of their time trapped in the mountains trying to discern who it was who's responsible for the murder. Now, I'm gonna give away the ending, so don't listen if you don't wanna know the ending. But the the twist at the end, which makes the story so memorable, is as this great detective interviews person after person on the train, what he discovers is each of them have a motive. Each of them have a valid motive. Each of them could be a, a suspect. And what he discovers at the end is that every single person on the train was involved in the plot. To commit the murder the whole train was guilty it's it's an amazing ending right it's a real bombshell moment at the end when he discovers everyone on the train is responsible Jesus's death is not a mystery it was recorded quite clearly who is responsible for Jesus's death but there's a there's a parallel here with the Orient Express because as we're going to see uh, this morning, when you ask the question, who's responsible for Jesus' death? Who, in the first, in first century Jerusalem, was responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? The answer is, everyone on the train. Everyone in the room in Jerusalem in the first century played a role. And we're going to look at the various actors who played a role in sentencing Jesus to death. And eventually, we're going to see, well, we'll see first... Of course, the the religious leaders have played their part, and Pilate plays his part, it's a very interesting one. The crowd plays a part in crucifying Christ, the people as a whole, and finally, we're gonna have a sort of a surprise ending of our own. We'll see that Jesus himself was, in one sense, in on the plot, and we'll take a look at what that means and what that means for us as Christians. Let's read our passage together. Mark 15, the first 15 verses. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we look to your word this morning, uh, you would reveal the truth both about our own hearts and the truth about our Savior, Jesus. That you'd open our hearts uh, to uh, convict us and correct us where we need conviction and correcting. And that too, Lord, you would encourage our hearts as we look to Christ, that we would see him as our all-sufficient Savior and that we would bask in his grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So, we've got one guiding question this morning. Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Who allowed it to happen? Who's in on the plot? We're going to see four answers. The first answer is one we've already talked about last week it's the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. Take a look at verse one. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. This is merely picking up on the narrative where we left it off last week. You'll remember last week we looked in detail at the trial of Jesus before the religious leaders. And we learn here in verse one that that trial took place in multiple stages. First, in the middle of the night, Jesus was brought before a select committee of the Sanhedrin, and they drew up the charges. That's what we talked about last week. And then just as morning was breaking, Jesus was brought before the full Sanhedrin, probably a number of dozen of these religious leaders, and they, uh, they rubber-stamped the decision, yes, Jesus ought to be delivered to death. And then we, we read they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, we're not going to look in depth at the, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders' motives for turning Jesus over to Pilate. We, we talked about that quite a lot last week. Just by way of review, the religious leaders had a problem with Jesus because Jesus was gaining a following, people were listening to him, and Jesus was calling them out on their sin. Right? He was calling them out as hypocrites. He was calling them out for the, the way they were abusing the people and the way they were um, taking people's money. And uh, they, they were a bit threatened, right? Jesus was walking into their house and messing everything out. And so uh, the, in their envy, right, and in their, in their desire not to be disturbed, they say, all right, we gotta get rid of this Jesus. He's causing too many problems. And we spoke last week, you may remember, about how we can be prone to do the same thing, right? When Jesus comes into our lives and we encounter his word and he starts turning over tables, right, and calling us out on our sin, we can be prone to make excuses not to listen to him, right? or to get rid of him. We want to avoid that. That's the error error of the religious leaders. That's the religious leaders. Who's involved in Jesus' death? Chief priests, the scribes, the elders. The next person involved in Jesus' sentencing to death is Pilate. Pilate's a, a proper name. His name is Pontius Pilate. And Pilate was the Roman governor over the region at the time. And we're told that the the chief priests and the scribes bound Jesus, they put him in handcuffs, and they bring him to Pilate. Now, why Pilate? Why did these religious leaders have to go through the Romans? It's because the the Jews at the time were under the, the rule of the Romans, and these religious leaders had some measure of authority among their own people but any authority they had, it all had to be basically rubber-stamped by the Romans. And these Jewish leaders didn't have the authority to enforce any kind of death penalty. The Romans reserved that for themselves. And so the religious leaders have to go through Pilate if they want Jesus taken care of. And so that's why they, they, they bring him to Pilate. And verse 2, we meet Pilate, and Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? are you the king of the Jews? Which is an interesting question to begin with. Um, Mark doesn't give us the context for this, um, but we are given the context in the other Gospels. Why, Why does Pilate start off asking Jesus, are you the king? And that's because the religious leaders, the Pharisees, knew exactly what to say to Pilate to get Jesus killed. You may remember from from last week in the trial of jesus before the religious leaders they weren't talking about jesus and any kind of claim to kingship right they were t- their accusation against jesus then was blasphemy right that was the charge they were able to kind of trump up to get jesus accused by the the uh, sanhedrin here's a different accusation they're not coming before pilate and saying hey listen uh, this guy's a blasphemer against our religion what would Pilate say to that What's it to me? Right? And so they come to Pilate and say, say, hey, listen, this guy, he says he's the king of the Jews and he's trying to get people to follow him as king. Now that would have registered as a threat on Pilate's radar. Keep in mind the context of the time. Jerusalem and Judea, this is a powder keg. In the, in the hundred or so years around Jesus's lifetime, there's multiple rebellions. There's multiple sort of guerrilla warfare groups waging war against the, the, uh, the Roman oppressors. Um, and uh, there's multiple rebellions to various degrees of, of success. So uh, the Jews really didn't like the Romans. And Pilate's, basically his one job was to keep everything down. <laughs> to to make sure that none of these rebellions were successful and to try and keep the the jewish anger under wraps and to try and keep things calm and peaceful and so it would have registered as something pretty serious for the religious leaders to say hey uh, pilate um listen we have one king we serve the emperor we we respect your rule but this jesus guy he is a troublemaker he he says he's the king." He's trying, to, he's trying to take people under another empire. This is a problem, Pilate, and you better do something about it. So Pilate asks him, verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. This is one of the greatest non-answers in all of history. You have said so. What's that supposed to mean? Those are the four English words, anyways, that Mark records Jesus saying in this whole passage. If you've got a red-letter Bible, only four words in red. Jesus doesn't say hardly anything at all. We're going to circle back to that. It's significant. John, in his gospel, does record that Jesus said more on this occasion, but not much of it amounted to any kind of real defense. He sort of deflected the accusations and And kind of, in a sideways way, did own up to being the king. But he says in in John's Gospel, um, uh, 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 not a king of this world, right? Uh, My kingdom is not of this world. Um, But in all of it, he's he's deflecting. He's not really addressing the charges head on. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. Chief priests, they're coming with all kinds of accusations. They've got a whole list of things that that might stick on Jesus. And verse 4, Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Pilate recognizes, Jesus, you're not really defending yourself. What's what's going on here? Don't you have any answer for this? Aren't you supposed to be a great teacher? What are you you doing? Verse 5, but Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus is an enigma to Pilate. You have to imagine, usually when people are brought before Pilate on the threat of death, uh, they don't keep their mouths shut, right? They're pleading with Pilate, please, 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 don't put me to death, please. Listen, I didn't do it, I'm innocent. Listen, here's, here's some excuse, here's some reason, please, right? Groveling on the ground before Pilate. That's what he's used to. He holds almost unlimited power over the people under his rule. And Jesus says almost nothing. Makes no real defense. Pilate was amazed. Jesus was silent. What are we to make of this? We're gonna come back to it. I wanna focus on Pilate for now. We'll come back to Jesus. Pilate's in a quandary here. He's dealing with a lot of factors. On the one hand, he knows that Jesus is innocent. And we know this from, uh, from the, the verses that follow. Verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate was no dummy. He was a shrewd political operator and he saw right through the religious leader's claims. He recognizes These are phony claims. They're just trying to get rid of Jesus. They're envious of his position. They're threatened by him. And then again in verse 14, to the crowd, Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? Even just before he issues the sentence, Pilate is still grasping at straws, wondering what on earth is this guy getting killed for? Pilate couldn't seem to find any good reason. So on the one hand pilate recognizes there's not really any good evidence against this jesus there's really no reason to kill him but on the other hand he's got the chief religious leaders of israel mad right in his office pounding on his desk saying get rid of this guy now of course pilate had power over them but they still had significant power and sway within within jerusalem they they could cause a lot of trouble for pilate if if Pilate didn't go their way. And so Pilate's in a little bit of a pickle, right? On the one hand, he sees Jesus is innocent. On the other hand, probably shouldn't do anything to make these guys upset. And so Pilate, the politician, makes just the most brilliant move. Verse six. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And Pilate remembers this. He's like, actually, I think this afternoon I'm supposed to let a prisoner go. You can start to see the wheels turn in his mind, right? If I can take Jesus before the crowd, they say he's the king of the Jews, probably the crowd will ask for him to be released. And I can release him to the crowd, and then the religious leaders will, I'll be able to tell them, hey, it's out of my hands. The crowd asked for him, your own people wanted him. Not much I can do. Pilate saw it as a way out. Verse seven, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there's a man called Barabbas. Verse eight, the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. This is probably why there's a crowd in front of uh, Pilate's Pilate's headquarters. Um, People know, usually around four o'clock on this day of the Passover, Pilate releases people, right? So they've started to gather. There's gonna be a show there's no cable TV, right? You've got to do something in Jerusalem <laughs> on a boring afternoon. So the crowd is gathered, and they begin to demand, do what you usually do for us. Let someone go. This apparently was Pilate's custom, probably as a way of appeasing them. Right? He's, he's trying to keep things kind of tamped down, and so this is like a, here, have some candy. Let, you, you can have one prisoner. Verse 9, and he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? This is Pilate's plan, right? If he can get the crowd to demand Jesus, then he gets out of this pickle. Verse 11, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So you've got the chief priests manipulating and working the crowd here. And crowds are easily swayed, and so he's, the, the crowd starts demanding Barabbas. Verse 12, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? If you want the axe murderer, what am I supposed to do with your, your king? You're the one who calls call him the king. Verse 13, They cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. We'll come to the crowd in a moment. But for now, I I wanna consider Pilate. Because that day, he signed the death warrant for a, a man he knew to be innocent. A man who he did not understand was actually the Son of God, the incarnate Lord. The Messiah, Jesus, who actually was the King of the Jews. How did Pilate get there? Did Pilate set out that morning to crucify an innocent man? Doesn't seem like it. But look at the way Pilate managed his authority. He'd been given a position a position to rule over this province and to enforce justice and right law. And look at how he handles it. The first chance he gets, he passes the buck. Right? Pilate knows what the right decision is. Right? If he'd been acting righteously, before he even considered the crowd, he would have said, listen guys, there's nothing against Jesus. I can't do anything for you. Let him go. But Pilate doesn't act that way because he's not acting primarily out of an active pursuit of righteousness. He's thinking politically and he's thinking about the easiest course of action, the thing that'll smooth things over the the, the easiest. He's not leading actively, he's leading passively. And you can see that in the first thing that he does. The first thing that he does is to pass the buck I don't want to make the decision. People, what do you think? I'll let you guys decide. And that was Pilate's mistake. It was being passive in his leadership. And this is something we can all be tempted towards. Being passive in our pursuit of righteousness. Many of us, maybe some of you, feel yourself tempted in in the direction of the priests, and you're tempted every morning to to set out and and sin, right? But I think usually our temptations are, are, are more indirect. We don't usually set out in the morning to sign the death warrant of the Son of God. But if we set out in the morning with a kind of passive attitude towards the things of the Lord, not actively working towards righteousness and holiness, but instead passively letting the people around us set the agenda, letting the media set the agenda, letting social media set the agenda, just living it passively. It's easy to slip into things we never intended. That's the error of Pilate. And we, ought, we ought to be careful and watch over our own souls. Not, not many of us, as far as I, I know, have been given authority over a whole province. But all of us, at the very least, have been given authority over our own bodies, over our own own minds. And and we ought not to live passively, just letting whatever comes, come. But instead, living actively, working to pursue righteousness in our lives. And and this is true, too, um, for those who have been given authority over more than just your own body. Maybe you have a position and authority at work, or you're... um, your husband and father and you're given as, as head over your home, right? In, in those kinds of positions, passivity is poison, okay? Pass, passivity is the error of Pilate. He's not leading. He's just getting along. He's just smoothing things over, right? Um, and for those who are given into positions of authority, um, passivity often leads to sin, even unintentionally. Because at the end of that day, Pilate signed Jesus' death warrant. Not intending to, just intending to to please the people who are in his charge. Fighting for righteousness is often harder, right? Almost always, (laughs) it's going to be harder than just settling into passivity and letting whatever happens, happen. But it's worth it. That's the error of Pilate. We've talked about the religious leaders. They were jealous. They were threatened by Jesus. They wanted him gone. We've talked about Pilate, who settled for passive leadership. Now I want to consider the crowd. The crowd's an interesting character here. We're not given a lot of insight into who they are. The one thing we're we're told about the way they made up their minds is that, verse 11, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Again, you have to wonder if any of those among the crowd set out that morning to yell, crucify him about their Messiah, their king. Probably not. But there's something about being in a crowd that you can be swept up by. If any of you have ever been to a concert, Right? And even if you go to a concert or a band you don't know, and you don't know any of the songs, there's something about being in that atmosphere that sweeps you up in the occasion. And I, I imagine something similar was going on on this occasion. But crowds are fickle. And we see this throughout the Gospels. When we read in the Gospel of, the John, of John and the feeding of the 5,000, um, There's a whole crowd there, and they're real excited because Jesus is making them fish tacos, right, and giving them out for free. It's like, this is good stuff, right? But as soon as he starts to teach hard things, um, they start to winnow away. And all that's left is just the core group, the 12. Crowds are fickle, right? They like to hear what they like to hear. You see something similar, and this comparison is often drawn, between the crowd on Palm Sunday and the crowd here on Good Friday, right? Not necessarily the same exact people. There's somewhere between 100,000 and 150,000 people living in Jerusalem at the time, right? There's a lot of people. It's probably not the exact same crowd. Um, But there certainly may have been people there at both events. And it shows us something about the fickleness of crowds. When Jesus is riding in victoriously on the donkey, this is exciting, we could be part of this party. But when all the religious and political leaders seem to be lined up against Jesus, it's real easy to yell, crucify him. There's something to the majority power of a crowd. And it's up to us as Christians not to be swept up in the chants of the crowd, because the crowd is not always right. And it's up to us to be discerning as to when to listen to the crowd and when to ignore them. It's especially difficult in our day and age with the advent of social media and cable news and it's hard to know what voices to listen to. But the one voice we can always listen to is the word of God, right? And that's our, that's our, that's our stronghold even in the crowd. It's where we know we can be safe. Who's involved in Jesus' death? Well, the priests and Pilate and the crowd. I want to go back to Jesus now. We kind of left that hanging. Pilate's amazed. What is this Jesus on about? What's his deal? What's his problem? He should be begging for his life, and he's barely saying a word. What's going on with this Jesus? It's fascinating because Jesus hardly even figures in this narrative. We hardly hear anything from him. What's Jesus doing? And on a surface reading, we might be tempted to think that Jesus was actually being even more passive than Pilate. We don't hear anything from him. He's not raising a finger in his defense. What's what's going on with Jesus? But the fact is that Jesus is actually more actively involved in plotting and planning here even than the priests were. We we can be tempted to read this kind of narrative and see Jesus as the unwitting victim, as if he's accidentally fallen into the hands of his enemies and is now, in the words of Pastor Steve, pacing back and forth and rubbing his hands together and saying, what to do, what to do? It's not what he's doing and, and we know that from what we've already read in the Gospel of Mark multiple times with explicit detail Jesus predicted to the disciples this is what's gonna happen when we go to Jerusalem I'm gonna be turned over to the chief priests he specifically says that they're gonna turn me over to the Gentiles he explicitly says that We're talking about Peter I'm um, not Peter Pilate and Pilate It's going to have me flogged, and they're going to spit at me and revile me, and they're going to kill me. And Jesus told his disciples multiple times, and of course they brushed it off, right? Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into. It was no accident that he's on the stand in front of Pilate. It's actually his specific intention. It's why he came. Jesus was not killed in some fluke of history. In fact, all of history was being guided towards this event. We get this taught explicitly in Acts chapter 2, if you want to turn there with me, Acts chapter 2, and we hear here we hear, hear from the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Peter, who we've been kind of down on the last couple of weeks, right, because he denied Peter, and it's a, it's a real bummer, but that's not the end of the story for Peter. It's never the end of the story. In Acts two, Peter gets his courage. It's in the form of the Holy Spirit. And instead of cowering before a little girl who's questioning him, um, he's actually standing in front of the whole city of Jerusalem proclaiming the crucified and risen Christ. And it's an amazing sermon. Acts two, and he's talking about Jesus. He's explaining for Jerusalem What has just happened with Jesus? Verse 23, Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is what happened, Peter's saying. You crucified him, you killed him, lawless men, right? Right? The lawless scribes and Pharisees, who were unjustly convicting him. Lawless Pilate, who didn't really care about justice. And the lawless crowd, who were willing to be swayed even into yelling, crucify our king. But back of and behind those sordid schemes is a deeper plan, according to Peter. Peter. It was no accident that Jesus was crucified at the hands of lawless men. It was indeed his intention. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. It was no accident Jesus died on purpose. Who is behind the murder of Jesus? Well, we can say on a human level, the priests and Pilate and the crowd, but on an ultimate level, on an eternal basis, it's Jesus himself and God the Father who sent him. At which point, we come back to Pilate's question. We come back to Pilate's amazement. Have you no answer to make? Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus had a plan. He had an intention. Pilate's wondering, why on earth do you make no defense? Why are you allowing yourself to go to the cross without any kind of, without anything to say? I'm convinced Jesus could have talked himself out, could have talked Pilate out of convicting him before he even brought him to the crowd. We've read Jesus's words, right? Time and time again, the Pharisees try and trap him in his words and he turns them on his head, right? It's like this verbal jujitsu. He uses their energy against them and it's, it's amazing. Jesus could have done that this here. He chose not to, he chose to say, stay silent, why? Why this plan to die? Why does death make any sense? Why would you plan to do this? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's eternal plan. Why Jesus' death? Isaiah speaks about this in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53:10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why? And the answer is the balm that our weary souls need. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Why? Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Jesus set his face to the cross and uttered not a word before Pilate because Jesus loves sinners. God made a plan from all eternity that Jesus would die, that he would silently suffer at the hands of wicked men because God loves weak, broken, sinful people like us because God has set his heart on us. We had gone astray. You know the story. You know this. We need to be reminded though. We had gone astray. All of us were sinners. And the punishment due us is death and Jesus said, I'll take it. On the cross, Jesus bore our sin. He bore the penalty due us. He bore the wrath of God in our place. He died that we might live. He shed his blood that we might live eternally, and he rose from the grave three days later that we might live with him forever. Hallelujah. And this ought to be a great comfort to us, especially when we wonder if God could really love us, if God could really care for us. We wonder if God might be reluctant with his grace. We wonder if God might be reluctant with his love and with his fellowship And maybe you're, with all the stuff that's happening in your life, you're prone to wonder, where is God in all this? And I wonder if maybe the disciples looked around on that Good Friday and wondered, where is God in all this? Seems like evil's winning. What on earth is happening? God was there on the witness stand before Pilate. Silent, That's where God was, in the flesh, ready to die for you. It's a comfort, first of all, because we know that God is present and he's sovereign even when he's not obvious. But on a deeper level, the cross shows us that God will go to any length to win back sinners to himself, to forgive us of our sins and to reconcile us to himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, trust in him. If if God has convicted you of your sin today and you you have this burden on yourself and you wonder, "How, how can I be reconciled to God? It's through the cross, it's free, it's a gift. Trust in him, ask for forgiveness. He never turns anyone away and if you're a christian this morning and you wonder where is god in all this does he really love me fix in your mind the image of jesus silent before pilate the reason he said nothing before pilate is because your name and the name the names of everyone who have ever put their faith in him were etched in his mind and on his heart. Because he'd set his face to the cross to suffer and to die for you. Let there never be any doubt in your mind that God could love you. He's loved you before you were ever born. And he'd fixed a plan to reconcile you to himself, even from before creation. Fix your eyes on the silent Savior and know that God loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. and We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. That in him, we might live. We ask, Father, that you'd comfort us this morning with the love of Christ and that you'd help us this week to fix our eyes on Jesus, on the silent Savior before Pilate, and in him see the love of God and experience true intimacy with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Let's stand and sing 349 in closing. Oh, how he loves you and me. And I'd like to uh, uh, sing the first and the second verse. And we're going to sing the first verse with the piano and then the second verse acapella. 349, oh, how he loves you and me. Happy time out back.